The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. Heavenly Father, God, I come before you now and I thank you for salvation and I thank you for this time that we can look to the scriptures for the answers that, that, that help people as they struggle. God, I pray right now that you'd speak through me, that you'd enable me because I know I can't do this unless you do. Lord, I pray you'd open all our hearts to the scriptures and I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, first up, sciencedaily.com. If you're interested in um, depression, anxiety, if you're just interested in science in general, um, sciencedaily.com, if you go there and sign up, they'll email you anywhere from 10 to 50 summations, one or two page summations of uh, research that has been published in the last month or so. And often it will have uh, articles about schizophrenia, depression, ADHD, and any number of things that that people who are involved in counseling are interested in. Um, So I commend that to your attention. ScienceDaily.com. This was a, uh, uh, from... This is an old one, but it was from September the 16th of 2015, and it was um, an article that talked about the reanalysis of antidepressant trial finds popular drug ineffective and unsafe for adolescents. It was looking at the um, uh, Zoloft and its use of treatment, or paroxetine, in the use of treatment for depression for, for adolescents and children. So that, that's the kind of articles you'll find. Another um, interesting article to me recently was um, an article about, um, I think they were newts or frogs, and uh, sexual reproduction. Now, why is that interesting? Well, the um, article, the research article said that um, the while sexual reproduction is the, uh, is the common method of reproducing plants and animals almost universally on this planet, it is inefficient. Yes, cloning or asexual reproduction would be more efficient. But, and and the article actually was aiming at, at proving that, looking at some sort of lizard or something like that. Now, that didn't interest me as much as their observation that in 95 to 99% of all living organisms on the face of the earth, an inefficient means of reproduction is currently in use. Think, think. Yes, it's, it's spinning around in your heads right now. It's like, what would evolution do? What would evolution do? It would pick the most efficient means of reproduction. It wouldn't pick an inefficient means of reproduction. So if inefficient means of reproduction is the most commonly used means of doing it, it sort of tells you something about maybe there was a designer, someone who picked, and who picked it for almost every animal or plant or being on the planet. Now that to me is an interesting scientific article. Maybe put you guys right back to sleep, but... But it interests me. I started practicing medicine in 1975. Depression was not the main concern for most Americans, and antidepressants were not the most common drug prescribed in the United States. Today, research tells us that antidepressant medications 
are the third most common prescription written in the United States today. I think the most common by amounts sold is Abilify right now, which is being sold as an add-on drug for depression, but it's an atypical antipsychotic, and that should just scare the berjabbers out of most of us because, you know, they have significant atypical antipsychotics have significant side effects. Now, they're great if you're psychotic. I mean, you know, there is a use for this drug, but for every person who is unhappy with the way life is going, not so much. One in four Americans today currently take a psychiatric medicine. I, I wear two hats in this arena. As a physician, I encounter the, inter, the issue from a medical viewpoint most every day. On Mondays, I go up to Lafayette, Faith Church, uh, Faith Church's Biblical Counseling Ministry, and I counsel individuals from the other side, other side of the divide. Uh, I like to teach from case histories. Um, I have to make them HIPAA compliant. You know what HIPAA is, the Health Information Portability and Privacy Act. If I don't make them HIPAA compliant, I could go to prison and I don't look good in orange. And <laughs> short guys don't do good in prison anyway. <laughs> so these are HIPAA compliant. Um, now, before I do talk about them, one thing I want to say is that nothing that I'm going to tell you is meant to be critical of anyone who takes medication for depression, period. I, I, I am not aiming at that, and, um, and, and nothing that I'm going to tell you should discourage anybody from stopping, or stop, should encourage anyone to stop taking their medication or change their dose without talking to their physician. I always have to do that because some people will listen and, and they'll come away with a different idea of what I intended to say. I'm always impressed by what people come away thinking that I said as opposed to what I thought I said. I, I don't know what it is, but you know, it's the interpretation thing as the words go through the air. Ah. All right, now to the cases. Uh, I had a lady come in to see me at the office, this was probably two years ago, and uh, she had been struggling at home. Um, she, was, she had a sad mood most every day. Uh, she uh, felt worthless. Uh, she was ashamed that she wasn't meeting the needs of her husband or her children. She um, wasn't thinking about harming herself, but sometimes wondered if she'd be better off if, if she were gone. Um, things like that. Hadn't been gaining weight, wasn't sleeping. Um, and she wanted, uh, what she came in for was to get an antidepressant. Uh, her friends had told her that she'd be, you know, that it would probably help. Now, when someone comes in and tells me that story, what I really want to know is what's going on. You know, I, I'm a doctor. I, I, I'm not a pharmacist. You don't walk in and put in your order, and then I write something out, and boom, it comes out, out of the machine. I, I really need to know what the history was. And the history for her was that her parents, um, I, I, think, I, I think they were in their 50s, her parents were going through a really ugly divorce. Not only were they divorcing, they were being juvenile about it. And the acrimony that was going back and forth between the two of them would fall out on this, on this woman. I listened to her story for a good long while, and, and then I, I told her that I, I doubted that she had a disease. What I thought instead was that she had suffered a significant loss in life. 
and she had. She'd lost the joy of having two parents who would get along and and who would uh, be good grandparents for her grandchildren. Uh, you know, all kinds of things going, you know, Thanksgivings, Christmases, um, birthday parties, any number of things that were going to be disrupted because her mom and dad couldn't couldn't get couldn't get along. I um, I told her that uh, I could do one of two things for her. I could write her a prescription for the antidepressant that she wished, um, or I could send her to talk to someone. And I also told her that the research would indicate that for 80% of people who are in her situation, that they will do just as well if they go talk to someone in the short run, and in the long run, they'll do better. The reason why they'll do better is because they'll go talk to somebody and maybe get some of this stuff worked out, as, as opposed to continuing to being unhappy about it. I told her about the limitations of the benefits of the medicine, and I told her about the side effects, and I parked for a bit on what we see often in people who take uh, the SSRI antidepressants is that there is a change in personality. While the medicines don't seem to work all that well for depression for the large majority of people who take them, they do change people's personalities. And um, the, I, 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 and I told her about that, and then I asked her to make her choice. And what do you think she chose? Medicine. Medicine. <laughs> That's, that was easy. Uh, we live in a society that, um, you know, the idea of going and talking to somebody for an hour at a time for weeks on end as compared to uh, swallowing a pill in about five seconds once a day, you know, we, the, the effort involved is, is just too much. And, I, and so I wrote her the script. I told her, okay, I'll do that. I, but then I told her, I want you to come back in two weeks because I need to see how you're doing with the medicine. And then I also told her, but, and I also want you to think about talking to somebody. Because even if you take the medicine, statistics tell us that you would be better off uh, while you take the medicine going and talking to someone. The um, second case was an older lady who had taken medication for years. Now I will tell you what happened to all these people at the end, so you, you, know, you have to stay awake or something like that. <laughs> And if you do get to where you think you're going to go to sleep, just stand up. I, I fully understand this is after lunch. The room is just a little bit warm. And then you probably didn't sleep eight hours last night, I'll bet. And so the tendency might be for you to nod off. But, you know, I used to stay up all night and work in the emergency room all night, Saturday night, and go to church on Sunday morning. And my defense is that I would get up and go stand at the back of the auditorium. And I'd stand there for the whole surface because I knew that I couldn't fall asleep without harming myself. <laughs> All right, so the second case was um, an older woman who'd taken an antidepressant for years. She'd lost her husband about four years earlier, um, and she came saying that she wanted to be off medication. She thought that if she were living close enough to the Lord that she wouldn't need to take it. Now, you know, as I listened to her story, at the time she was doing fairly well, and so I suggested that since she was doing fine, that there really wasn't any obligation for her to quit taking the medicine if she didn't want to. Um, we did go on to explore in counseling how she was growing and changing and becoming more like Christ. I told her I wouldn't tell her to stop taking her medicine or to change her dose in counseling because that's not my place. 
I'm a physician licensed to practice medicine in the state of Indiana, Pennsylvania, and Oregon. And when I counsel, it's in Lafayette, Indiana. And I could, by law, uh, write scripts. I could tell people how to manage their medicine, and I will not do it. And the reason why I will not do it is because it's not ethical. The reason why it's not ethical is because I didn't start that medicine. If you, if you question whether or not a, a, a patient needs to be taking the medicine that they're taking, and it isn't a life-threatening question, you know, like if you take one more of these pills, you'll die. Uh, if it's not that, then what you really should be doing is sending them back to the doctor who started it with a little nice note saying, uh, you know, I see this happening, you know, what do you think? And, um, and that's what I told her. I, 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 so I, I wouldn't advise her about st stopping it or, 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 or changing it. And I did tell her that I thought we had a, after I got done talking to her for about an hour, that we had a really lot to work on, that uh, stopping the medicine at that point in time probably would simply result in her having the same kind of problems that she had always had. But I did tell her that after we counseled for a while, we discuss it again. Third case was a fellow who'd struggled with a sad mood for 40 years. And he would tell me that there was no reason for him to feel that way. And you know, he didn't have anything that bad that had happened in his life. It just came to him, and he'd been dealing with it for most of the 45 years he'd been alive. Uh, he wasn't taking any medicine at the time, but he was just struggling in almost area ever of his life. At work, at home, at church, all presented problems for him. He was really the kind of guy that I would have expected to have been taking medicine, but he wasn't. Uh, he had been on just about every combination of psychiatric medicine known to mankind at one time in those, in those years, and he would say that initially it would help, uh, but then after a while he would just revert back to his old sad mood, and it didn't seem to make a whole lot of difference, and, it, and they almost, almost all carried side effects. Um, he had lived for several years by now, without taking medicine, but his sad mood came and went regularly. When it came, he would quit talking to family and friends. Uh, they would perceive him as angry. And as I would find out as I talked to him longer, he really wasn't angry. He was just looking like it. You know, that was, and it was his approach to dealing with this sad mood in the best way that he knew how. And he came to, to talk to me because I'd written a book about it. It's good mood, bad mood. It's about depression and bipolar disorder. They may have it in the bookstore. Okay, yes. If you really want to know what I think about depression, go buy the book. Um, I'm just teasing, kidding. I don't tell jokes very well. You know, it, it, if I could, I, I wouldn't be here. I'd probably be on late night television or, or something like that. I can remember once they told me not to tell jokes. The... Um, when I was traveling for uh, Randy Patton, who uh, was the head of the ACBC, came to me one day and told me not to tell jokes, and so I quit. But what I did was that I would ask everybody at the end of the lecture, when you fill out that ev evaluation form, would you please put a little note at the end of it and say, "We really, I really like the jokes. <laughs> and, and I did that for months. And finally, Randy came and wanted, he was dying to know what in the world I was doing. <laughs> and so, and so I, I told him. It's my, my own passive-aggressive way of dealing <laughs> with it. Mm. Now, the church has a significant struggle, doesn't it? Dealing with the idea of depression. We do. We have had, had for years. But don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not, this isn't going to be an accusation of what the church has done or anything like that. There'll be lots of other people to do that. 
But, I, you know, I spent a, a fair amount of time thinking about why sadness as a disease called depression has been a struggle for the church to come to response to it. It brings me back to 2 Corinthians 7, 6, which says, The God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, that's in the New American Standard Bible, which is a, a fairly literal word-for-word -word translation, although that exactly doesn't exist. I, re I read an article by Mounts, William Mounts, and he said, eh, that, that's, that's not so true. I mean, you know, it's really hard to actually, do, the only actual word-for-word -word translations are inter interlinear translations, and if you tried to read it that way, it would be awkward. So they, they have to move things around for it to make any sense in English coming, coming out of Greek. Well, the New American Standard Bible is the only Bible that translates uh, tapenos in 2 Corinthians 7-6 as depressed. Everybody else translates it discouraged, downhearted, um, or, or, or a word like that. Um, now, the... Um, and I don't know that actually if they were retranslating the New American Standard today that they would translate it that way. And, and the reason why I say that was bec is because the word has changed in the way we view it um, from 1975 until present. Um, today, depression for most people means uh, I'm sad. Um, in fact, one writer said, nobody says that I'm sad today. We all say I'm Depressed, yeah, and that's the reason why is because we've been taught to do that for about 30 years by the manufacturers of medication, uh, which are sold for depression, and by the National Institute of Mental Health. I did a survey among my friends, one of whom is my brother, who has a PhD in New Testament interpretation, and I asked him to give me an example of someone in the Bible who was sad, gripped by sadness, sorrowful or sorrowing, who had absolutely no reason in their life to do so absolutely no reason in their life to do so. And I'm willing to be corrected. I just can't find anybody like that. And if you can come up with one, you know, I'll take my hat off to you. And lots of examples come up, but then when we examine them, it's sort of like Gildner Radner used to say, it's always something. You know, is Cain, well, you know, Cain made the wrong offering and God rejected him. Elijah, that was the threats from Jezebel. Saul had the underlying knowledge that somebody was there waiting to take his kingdom away from him. Hannah was childless. And of course, Paul had the church at Corinth. Yes. <laughs> yes. If you're a pastor here and you had a church like the church at Corinth, you'd be discouraged too, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. In, entirely. I think one of the reasons why the question of medication for depression has been controversial for believers as it has been is simply because the Bible doesn't say much about sadness that stays for weeks or years. It has no discernible cause. We don't see it that much. Sadness in Scripture is not seen as a disease as much as an outcome of our response to events. And until the 1980s, I wouldn't say that the church had much of a framework in which to put sadness as a disease, but times do change. So what's happened with the shifting definition of depression? When I was in medical school back in 1975, between 1971 and 1975, probably before the, most of you were born, um, depression uh, was a sad mood that came without cause. If you were going to be diagnosed with major depression, you, had, you, you couldn't be able to tell us why. 
if you could tell me why you were sad, you would be given a diagnosis of some kind of reaction disorder, situational uh, response problem, uh, grieving. You know, generally grieving would have been would have been a big diagnosis. If you were struggling with life and couldn't eat or ate too much, couldn't sleep or slept too much, if you lost interest in enjoyable things of life, including sex and golf, if you, (laughs) come on, come on. There have to be some golfers in the room, yes. Uh, if, if, If you struggled with shame and with guilt and wanted to end your life, you could be diagnosed with depression if this went on for more than two weeks. That, that's, that's what happened in, in 1980. And unless, unless your husband died last week, and in, in that case, you got two months. After two months, you would be diagnosed with depression. And they've done away with that in the DSM-5. Now, there's, there is no two-month uh, buy for people who've lost a spouse. I, I can remember reading uh, some research in, uh, about widows. The, um, the widows who did the worst were young women who had several small children whose husbands had skillfully left them at least $10,000 in life insurance and no other visible means of support. Those women struggled mightily. The, the women who did a little bit better were women whose husbands left them, you know, like a million bucks or two million bucks or whatever, you know. One of these days I may get run down right running out there on the road, mowed down by some car or something, and someplace there's going to be a merry widow, you know, my wife. I can see her right now out buying the black dress. But then, um, but then the, the widows who actually did the best were the women who didn't like their husbands at all. <laughs> Yeah, it didn't bother them at all that he croaked. So, what is normal sadness? Normal sadness. Good book about normal sadness. I talk about it in my book, but another good book about it is uh, The Loss of Sadness by uh, Alan Horowitz and Jerome Wakefield. Yeah, Alan Horowitz and Jerome Wakefield. I commend it to your attention. Uh, it, uh, it talks about what has ha- happened in the United States converting sadness over loss into depressive disorder. And uh, it's kind of, it's, it's about 350 pages long. It's probably the kind of book you needed a good night's sleep before, maybe a cup of coffee or something like that. It's not a John Grisham novel, but it has a lot of very interesting stuff in it. Normal sadness, as far as they were concerned, um, came from came from cause they uh, it, it is it comes when we lose something important to us something that we don't want to live without it can be anything that you think of including a spouse a job status at work physical losses and trust me at 67 I understand physical losses the loss of a pet children children don't need a qualifier they have unique ways of bringing sadness into our lives at times <sighs> and anything that you think you cannot live without can be lost, and then comes sadness. That is a normal part of living. That sadness will, will stay until the lost item is regained or replaced, or until we come to peace about it. The intensity of that sadness will match the loss. It's like the lady who's driving down the interstate and she's in a hurry and she's going a little bit too fast and then out come the lights and the car pulls up behind her and she pulls over and the policeman walks up and as he does, she is, what is she doing? Come on, what is she? Crying, yes. Does it help? 
No, not really, not very much. And, and so she's sad. Why? Because she just got a $300 ticket. You know, it's, it's going to be a, a problem. What am I going to do with it? When does she get over her sadness? When she figures out that she has $300 worth of space on her credit card. Boom. That's, you know, whenever, when she solves the problem. Compare that to the uh, individual who loses a child. You know, the child wanders out of the back of the house, falls into the swimming pool, and drowns. How long do you think that's going to go on? Lifetime. Yeah, it can go on for a lifetime. That's right. It will go on. The intensity matches the loss. It, it, the duration uh, depends on whether or not the, the, loss, the loss is regained or, it's, or, or whether or not we come to peace about it. Now, this is a vitally important point because if you label people with a disease label and then treat them with a medication meant for depression, for a disease, and they don't have a disease, if they're just sad because of something they lost, guess what you're going to have in the long run? You're going to have an individual who is still sad over that loss and who now gets to struggle with the side effects of the medication that you give them. And that's going to be true probably for 87% of the people who, who take uh, antidepressants. Again, I'm not being critical of people who take medicine for depression. Just talking to you about what the scientific facts of the matter are. Then there's disordered sadness. What's the difference? Disordered sadness is sadness for which there's no cause, none that, that you, can, you can elicit from the history. And if you're here as a biblical counselor, you can, you can ask these questions. You can make this differentiation. And that differentiation is enormously important because the scriptures have amazing, amazing benefit for people who are struggling over the loss of things. They do, that you can find great comfort there. So, does this help the, um, yeah, the understanding, does understanding the difference help? It certainly helps those who are struggling with normal sadness. As, as one lady told me after we talked about this at length, and she had suffered a substantial loss in life, I, you know, she said, as she left, well, you know, the, the thing that, that helped her most was that she, she, wasn't, she wasn't sick. I'm not sick, I'm simply sad. You know, that made a big difference to her. So it makes a, a goodly difference to the 90% of people for whom, this is, for, for whom their sadness is due to a loss. It makes an equally important difference to the other 10%. Why? Because then they can learn from Scripture how to deal with a chronically sad mood that isn't going to go away but that which they can respond to in a way that won't cause them more trouble than they already have. You know, my impression of people who have disordered sadness is that generally over a long period of time, they try to adapt. They do the best they can. But often what they're doing as they adapt becomes very nonproductive. It drives people away from them when they're struggling. It makes their life harder. All right. Now, and, and keep in mind that... that you know, in the same sense that we are saved by grace, we live by grace, Christians, Christians can respond to losses and they can respond to sad moods by God's grace. Now, let's look at medication in the Bible. Is it, a right, is it right or wrong? 
That used to be a popular question. And I've always said, it's the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. It's that scene in iRobot where Will Smith is asking the hologram doctor who jumped out the window because Vicky is getting ready to take over the world. And he keeps asking questions and, and the hologram says, that's the wrong question until he gets down to the last question about whose revolution is it. And then he says, that is the right question. So I would tell you that whether, you know, the question is medicine, taking medicine a right or wrong issue from a biblical viewpoint, I would tell you that's the wrong question. The right question should have been all along is does it work? You know, it, it, it does, is it worth the side effects um, or the benefits from taking it be, worse, better than the side effects? Taking medicine for any reason as a believer is a Romans 14 issue. You guys know what happened in Romans 14? Anybody here? It was an argument in church. Imagine that. <laughs> yes. Wasn't this the issue of her uh, meat sacrifice idol? Ah, yes. Not only was it an argument in church, it was a war between the vegetarians and the meat eaters. <laughs> we're still having arguments in church, and we're still having that vegetarian thing, isn't it? Yes, I remember being in a parking lot um, in North Carolina, and I uh, got out of the car, I was going to be teaching, and I saw this bumper sticker, and it said PETA on the back of it, but it looked like it had little sentences stringing out from each letter, from P-E-T-A. And the closer I got, they were sentences, and when I got close enough to read it, it said, people eating tasty animals. <laughs> <laughs> I just lost the vegetarians, didn't I? I'm sorry. Uh, you know, if you want to eat vegetables, I think it's great. I'm, 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 but anyway. <laughs> this was the same kind of argument that was going on at, at, in Rome. And what was the argument? That, the, that if you offered eat meat, meat, meat to idols, you were being idolatrous. You know, you, you, you were sinful. And, of course, the other side said that if, if, you, if you were critical of people who ate meat offered idols, you were the weaker brother. You've heard that before. Weaker brethren. People who just aren't spiritual enough to understand the matter. And, and, and of course, what did Paul say about it? You know, it, it, it really doesn't make any difference one way or the other. What really was ticking him off, though, and what he boxed them about the ears about was that they were judging each other about it. That was the issue. And from that whole chapter, we, do, we, we in, I think, 1 Corinthians 8, we have a doctrine that we developed, and it is? Louder? Christian liberty. Exactly. Christian liberty. And what does Christian liberty mean? If the Bible doesn't speak specifically about an issue, then... We as believers have the privilege, not the right, the privilege to make our own choice about the matter within the confines of all the rest of Scripture. Within the confines of all the rest of Scripture. If you don't add that last little bit to it, what you're talking about is licentiousness. You know, we're, we're talking about liberty, the, right, the, the, freedom, the freedom to choose. And so does the Bible talk very much about medicine or pills or... <laughs> no, for a really good concrete reason. Why? They didn't have any. Didn't have any. No. <laughs> no, medicine was very primitive back then. Ah, yes. And so taking medicine, taking medicine for depression is a Romans 14 issue. We have no reason to be judgmental towards someone who does, or and, and, and if we don't want to take it, they have no reason to be judgmental towards <coughs> us either, right? Right, it's two-way street.
All right. So making a choice in the light of Christian liberty. And then the next question is, is it medically wise or unwise? I always like what Ed Welch said in his book, Blame It on the Brain. If you haven't read Blame It on the Brain, you should buy it and read it. How many of you have read it? Hands, good number of you. The rest of you, it's it's good read. And in it, he, he concluded... 20 years ago, that the that taking medicine for depression was not a matter of right or wrong. It was a question of whether it was wise or unwise. So what are the benefits? <coughs> what are the benefits and harms of taking medicine for depression? All right, the benefits. Um, well, they aren't nearly as good as we'd hoped. I, I guess that would be a good way to put it. I can remember when Prozac came out in the 1980s, I was uh, practicing medicine in a small town and um, in the Midwest and in Indiana called Lebanon, Indiana. It's 15,000 people. I said that in upstate New York where the towns are about 200 and the crowd actually laughed. Yeah, because they didn't consider my town small. But anyway, the um, I can remember when the, the Eli Lilly drug rep came through and told us that Eli Lilly had discovered the cause of depression and they had the solution to it. It was Prozac. And it, it, was, it was a rather heady time. Everybody was very enthusiastic about it. In fact, I can remember sitting in the, in the doctor's lounge one day and one of the physicians proposed that maybe the best thing we could possibly do for our small town was to take a 50-gallon barrel of Prozac and climb the water tower and dump it in. You guys didn't think that was funny at all, did you? I I think that's a scream. What's even funnier is we did it. Yeah, we did it. If you go to Portland, and I think it's the Columbia River, and I think as it goes away from Portland, and you uh, analyze the mud in Portland, guess what you're going to find? Prozac and Zoloft. And the reason why you'll find it is because it's not filtered out at the water system. It just keeps right on going through. And so we have written an enormous number of prescriptions for the medicine. Study done, and with that regard, you would think that depression should have been eradicated from the face of the earth. Instead, over, the, you know, from 1988 till 2000 or 15, I remember one study said that it actually it increased by about four times. There were four times more people labeled and diagnosed with depression and being treated than there were in, when, in 1988 when it started. Study done in January 2010 and published in the journal of the American Medical Association. And it was a summation of all the uh, studies done in order to get approval by the FDA to put uh, four antidepressants. And it included all of the studies. Uh, and the reason why I emphasize that word all a couple of times is because uh, initially these were studies that were unknown to the public. Uh, when Eli Lilly got approval for Prozac, it submitted two studies that said that uh, Prozac worked, that it you know, had a marginal benefit for those who took it with regard to depression. The, uh, what they were uh, keeping from the rest of us were that there were three other studies that showed that it didn't. And if you summed them together, uh, Prozac was really a fairly marginal medication. And the same could be say, said for several other of the companies who manufactured uh, antidepressants during that time. So in 2010, and at, and at the behest of a freedom of information lawsuit, um, the uh, studies were unearthed from the uh, from the companies that had, had, had done them for FDA approval, and they were all lumped together, and, and what they found out was this. 
was that for 87% of people who take the current crop of antidepressants that we have, that if you uh, compare them to people who take a pill that looks like but does not contain the active ingredient, a placebo, they are no more effective for the treatment of depression. They have no more effect than the placebo does for for 87% of the people who take them. That includes people who are mildly depressed, people who are moderately depressed, and even people who are severely depressed. The Statistically, the drug did not show a, a, a change in the depression rating scales that we're using until they got to very severely depressed people, which is about the last 10%. Now, you remember the 90% number I already told you? That was the 90% number of people who are diagnosed with depression who really probably have normal sadness. Uh, you know, you can put those two 90% numbers together. 90% don't get very much benefit from it. 90% really probably don't have a disease. It appears that they are somewhat effective in people who are very severely depressed. The people who probably, if you ask them, would tell you that they have no, they can't tell you when their depression started or why. So that's what we know about, about the effectiveness of, of the drugs. Um, now, what are the side effects and harms? Side effects um, of current SSRI antidepressants. Always keep in mind that doing nothing about depression is not a strategy. I always say that right in the middle of it. Um, the uh, Again, talking to someone seems to be probably the, the, the best thing that most people can do uh, when they're depressed. But doing nothing is not a strategy. Um, Side effects of current SSRI antidepressants include weight gain. What was really kind of amusing for Prozac early on was that it was sold as a medicine people could take to lose weight. (laughs) Yeah, but the truth of the matter is if you take it for 10 to 15 years, you'll gain 20 pounds. Um, um, It's also uh, associated with akesthesia, which is a restlessness, which can be interpreted as anxiety, but an in, sort of an inability to sit still. Uh, there is sexual dysfunction for both men and women. Um, major safety issue uh, comes for young people. The 2015 study that I talked about earlier pointed out that Paxil probably is not safe for for adolescents in the, in the way that we thought. And there is a black box warning for, uh, on these drugs for younger people. Um, the, um, now, what all the rest, what, what, are the, what other scriptures apply when it, when it comes? If you're going to make a, an informed choice about taking medicine or not, um, the, you know, the first thing I would say is that, um, you know, what's the prime directive? Anybody, anybody here watch Star Trek? What's the prime directive? To go That's the mission. <laughs> huh? Don't, don't change the society or? Oh, you're getting close. It was non-interference. Non-interference. Yeah, non-interference. You weren't supposed to interfere in any society, which was the underlying joke about the whole program, because what did they do every week? <laughs> they interfered everywhere, everywhere they went. So what's prime directive for Christians? Glorify God. Yes, I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Our primary 
goal in life is to glorify God. In biblical counseling, we are not problem-oriented. Um, most secular counseling is problem-oriented. You, you, you have a different kind of cognitive behavioral therapy for every problem you can think of now. You, know, you have it for people who are associated with trauma. You have it for people who have PTSD. Um, and, and you can get certified in every one of those different categories. In biblical counseling, we don't, we don't deal with problems. We deal in goals. Uh, and if you switch your goal, it'll probably deal with your problems. That's, that's the whole issue. But the primary goal is to glorify God with our lives. I, whenever I talk to individuals who are struggling, uh, I, I tell them, you know, my, I have a little ditty about motive. What's your goal in life? Is your goal to feel better or is your goal to glorify God? Um, if you want to glorify God, um, then I tell them it's Matthew 22, 37 through 39. You might want to write this down. Um, and it says, to, if, if you really want to glorify God, you have to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and then love your neighbor. It does not tell you to love yourself. Anybody who thinks that doesn't understand Greek at all. It tells you that you're supposed to love God and love, love others. So that means that you have to love God more than feeling good. You have to love God more than getting back the thing that you lost. You have to want to glorify God more than getting back the thing that you lost. Um, and then I, then I tell them, well, the Bible defines what does loving God look like? Because he does, and it's in John 14, John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them. He's the one who loves me. And, I, and so and you, you, I, I want to glorify God with my life more than I, I want whatever else I, I've lost. I, I love God more than the thing that I lost. And then I'm willing to do exactly what the Bible tells me to do when the Bible tells me to do it. And, you know, biblical counseling actually becomes sort of logical at this point. You know, I, I'm moving from what the goal is down to the, to the definition of what their, problems, what their problems are. And then I take them to John 13. Anybody in the room know what John 13 is about? Yes, it's, the, uh, it's John's depiction of the Last Supper, except he doesn't talk about dinner. Well, he does, sort of, but he doesn't talk about the bread or the cup, either one. The only thing he talks about is washing dirty feet. And the reason why that's important to individuals who are struggling is because uh, Christians are happiest and have the most joy when they're doing what? Serving. Serving other people. Yes, when they're washing dirty feet. Jesus gets done washing their feet because none of them would get up and do it. It's the old, you know, you're, if you ever had a bedroom with a sibling, you know, it, your feet were on the floor last. You, you should get back up and turn the light out. Or it's the argument on whose turn it is to take the trash out. Well, that was what was going on in that room that night amongst the disciples. What was the pecking order? And so since none of them would get up, Jesus got up. And when he God was done. He said, you understand what I've done to you? You call me your Lord and your, and your master, and you're right, because I am, and I washed your feet. You ought to wash one another's feet. And then he says, verse 17, it's great. He says, now that you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Yes, John 13, 17, now that you know these things, happy are you if you do them. So that's motive. Uh, you know, if, if you're making your choice about whether you're going to take medicine or whatever else you're going to do in life, that is the place to start. What's my goal in the, in the whole process? Uh, you know, I, I like 1 Corinthians 10, uh, particularly 10:13, uh, where it says that there is no temptation which has taken us, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, won't let us be tempted beyond what we're able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape. 
I, you know, I, I, I look at that, and, and, and when you look at chapter 10, it is all about the things that happen when we make something more important than glorifying God with our lives. In verse 14, what does he say? Let me see here. Therefore, my beloved brethren, flee from idolatry. What is it that you want more in life than glorifying God? Then, you know, as far as I'm concerned, taking medicine becomes a wisdom issue. Not just because we can do it doesn't mean we should. The, um, you know, it, uh, verse 15, is, I speak to as wise men, you judge what I say. Talking about eating things offered to idols, but then get down to 23 where he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edified. In other words, there are going to be some things that we could choose to do or not choose to do, and we would choose not to do them because it wasn't wise to do them. That's what Ed Welch was talking about in the book. Is it wise or unwise? Does, does, do the harms associated with taking the medicine outweigh the benefits? That should be an equation that's in your mind whenever you go to a doctor and he gets out a prescription pad, period. Doctor, would you tell me how this is going to help? What is this going to change in me? And then would you tell me every last little other side effect that could happen? Because I want to know if it's really worth the risk. And if the doctor doesn't want to do that, hmm, maybe you're talking to the wrong doctor. You know, if he's too busy to go through that with you, maybe you should be talking to someone who isn't too busy to talk to you about it. And then our choice in, in verse 24 ought to reflect... You know, if you're if you're making a wisdom choice and and you're looking at um, and and it and it's and it's not something that um, the Bible speaks expressly of, then 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I don't take Sudafed for a really good reason. I have allergies. I've taken every allergy medicine known to mankind. I, I've taken Sudafed, Benadryl, Zyrtec. Uh, I've blown Flonase up my nose. I haven't taken Singular. But what I have found out is this. If I take antihistamines, they make me have weird dreams. If I, if I take uh, Sudafed, my wife says it turns me into a jerk. If I, if I take Benadryl, after a few days, I want to hurt people. And if I take Flonase, my nose bleeds. So, you know, I look at the side effect benefit ratio there and I say, well, so, you know, I don't want my nose bleeding. And then on the other hand, other people seem to suffer when I take these medicines, you know, from having to be around me if I do. So I make this choice and I, I just get some Kleenex and blow my nose and forget about it. That's what, I, that's what I've done for years. The same can be said of any kind of medicine. I had a friend who had joint trouble and was taking Tramadol. He, he'd been addicted to Vicodin and, but was taking tramadol, and what he found out was, you know, the, the Vicodin would cause a personality change that his wife could see in a heartbeat that was very not good to be around. And when he, unfortunately, when he started taking tramadol, guess what happened? It was the same personality change, and so he elected not to take it and be uncomfortable. Eventually, decided to have his knees replaced. You know, it, and he made that choice in significant measure based on the benefit of other people who had to live around him. All right. So our choice will, should, uh, will affect others, and, we, and it should reflect it. What other scriptures apply? Ephesians 5. Making an Ephesians 5 choice about this matter. Okay. As we choose to take medicine. And it's making an Ephesians 5, 15 through 16 choice. What's it say? 
Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So, all right. Question that comes up is, can I serve God better? Can I serve God better taking the medicine than I can if I don't? If you can serve God better taking it, you should take it. If you can't serve God better not taking it, you shouldn't. I got that from a guy named Smith, Bob Smith. And it wasn't about medicine. It was about getting married. And, and when he would do premarital counseling, he had a question that he would always ask the counselees. And it was, all right, can you serve God better married than you can serve God single? And, um, of course, universally, what would they say? Uh, you know, most of the time, yeah, most of the time they got married, yeah. But it, it's a great question. It really stops you for a moment and makes you think. And that should be one question that we ask ourselves. Can we serve God better with the medicine or without it? If we can serve him better with it, we should take it. Then the next thing that you notice in that passage is that we shouldn't be controlled by the medicine. That's what... Um, that is what verse 18 talks about. Do not be drunk with wine. Don't be intoxicated. Don't be controlled, for that is dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit. We're supposed to be controlled. Our lives are supposed to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. They are not supposed to be controlled or conducted by the medicine that, are in, or whatever that we take. They shouldn't be controlled by the cigarettes we smoke. That's probably, I can say that in here, and I'm not going to make anybody mad, I bet. <laughs> Or the chewing tobacco. Maybe I'm getting closer to somebody. Not yet. I haven't tagged anyone yet. How about the coffee that you drink? Uh-oh. As my, as my mom used to say, the preacher's done left off preaching and gone to meddling at this point. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yes. So, but if uh, caffeine controls your life, what should control your life as a believer? You know, I'll talk about that tomorrow. So I won't stop there. So not controlled by the medicine. The uh, next thing is in verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, the Father, even the Father. We should, we should make our choice with a heart of gratitude. Yes, we should be grateful for whatever the outcome is. When does it tell us that we're supposed to be giving thanks? What does it say? Always. Do you know what that means in Greek? If, yeah, it does. That's right. <laughs> yeah, if you parse it out really carefully, it, it just means always, yes. Oh, I remember listening to a friend of mine who, who, who said, don't, don't tell me to be thankful to God for my headache. He said this in writing. <laughs> it was well published, you know. And I thought, wow, man, you just climbed out on a limb. He'll remain unnamed for his, because he's my friend. But, but the truth of the matter is, is that what does the Bible tell us? We're supposed to be always giving Thanks for all things, period. And that's the attitude with which we should approach the, the choice. We should also avoid the trap of the painless, happy life. Yes, we are, we are that so much in the United States today. I can tell you, our poor people live better than, than, than the average person does in most countries in the world today. You know, as, as, in spite of the fact what you might see on the news is politicians yell at each other and try to shoot each other now. The, the truth of the matter is, is that we as a nation are fat, well-fed, 
and somewhat blinded to the fact that we should be entirely grateful for the, for the, for the bounty that we have. And we as believers shouldn't be spending our lives trying to avoid being uncomfortable. Ah, why do I say that? It's Luke 9.23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he is supposed to do what? Take, deny himself, yes, and then take up what? When? Daily. daily. Every day. Take up his cross daily. I, I, I love what C.S. Lewis said about that. He said, when it, he says, when, it, when it gets down to the part about the cross, how did you miss that this was going to be about suffering? Yeah, that's right. When Jesus is telling us to pick up a cross, th- there are going to be times in life when we get to suffer and struggle. And so we shouldn't be spending our whole lives trying to figure out how to avoid it. Now, you probably want to know what I do as a physician about all this, don't you? So what's, what about the medical me? Yes, I write prescriptions for antidepressants. I write them because they're legal. I write them because I think the harms associated with them are not huge. I, I don't write for, um, for antipsychotic add-ons for individuals with depression because I think that the risks associated with that are, are, are huge. <laughs> they're far better than the benefit. Um, I, I do use it for people who have bipolar disorder one, manic depression, uh, you, you, know, it, 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 you know, lithium's a good drug, but the atypical antipsychotics are useful, particularly in people who aren't sleeping. Um, so it is not that I am, an, I'm not anti-medicine. I'm a doctor. You know, it would be kind of oxymoronic, wouldn't it? Yes, it just wouldn't fit. Um, I do tell, when people come in and they tell me they're depressed and they want medication, what I tell them is what I know from the research. And I tell them about the National Institute of Mental Health who says that 80% of people who struggle with with depression or sadness need to talk to somebody, period. Actually, everybody needs to talk to somebody. Uh, And and everybody will benefit. Um, And... um, but uh, if, they, um, if they tell me they want to take the medicine, I tell them about the side effects. I tell them about the changing personality issue. I tell them about the black box warnings, and then I make, I make them. I don't tell people what to do these days. I let them make their own choices. I put it out there for them. When I started practicing medicine, things were far more paternalistic. Uh, you went to the doctor. The doctor told you what to do. You, uh, hopefully, you trusted him, and you did it. And most of the time, it worked. Not anymore today. <laughs> I, you know, most of the time, you know, when people come in, they've already got their first and second opinions, you know, they, they, from from Google. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. I read once that if you if you if you really want to convince yourself that you're dying, take all your symptoms and plug it into Google. So anyway, I I um, I, I let them make their choice, and if they tell me they want the script, I'll write it for them. I see them back in two weeks. I ask them to consider seeing a a counselor. If they choose to see a counselor first or if they choose to see a counselor when they come back in two weeks, then I ask them what kind of counselor they want to see. I work for a secular company. You know, I I have to be somewhat um, circumspect about how I go about this. And so I, I, I tell them there are three kinds of people you can see. I can send you to see a psychologist or a social worker. I can send you to see a psych. Call it a psychiatrist, although psychiatrists don't much talk to people. I, I think I know the last psychiatrist who actually does talk therapy in the state of Indiana. He uh, he plays in my. He used to when I when I was a orchestra choral conductor. He he played trombone in my in my orchestra, 
but usually they don't talk much. You know, generally they are about writing prescriptions and they'll farm the talking part of it off to off to somebody else. So I can send you to the psychologist, the psychiatrist, or or I can send you to talk to a pastoral counselor, and then I sit back and wait, uh, and um, and then I send them to who they choose. If they pick pastoral counselor, we are off to the races, because at that point then I can hopefully get them to some place where they may be able to get some real help. Some help in dealing with whatever their, their loss is or whatever their loss was. All right. The normally sad may ha- make a great opportunity for us uh, to, to help in biblical counseling. That's what we are all about. Those who are di- have disordered sadness, uh, uh, they help from, from knowing that uh, their situation, um, uh, their situation may be there for the rest of their lives, but there is a, 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 a biblical way that they can deal with that sad mood. Um, now, what happened to the three cases? You guys want to know what happened to the three cases? All right, I have three minutes, I can do it. Now, the first woman uh, who presented with the two parents that were in the fight, um, uh, she came back in two weeks. Um, I asked her how she was doing. She said she was doing better. I asked her how she was getting along with the medicine, and she said, I didn't take it. Uh, and I asked her why. She said, because I watched my mother-in-law do what you said. Her mother-in-law had been in a similar situation, had gotten on medicine, and she watched that woman's personality change, and she did not wish to do that. So we helped her to get off to go talk to somebody. That was number one. Number two, the lady that I told to continue taking her medicine, guess what she did? <laughs> yeah, she probably went home and quit. And she came back weeping. Yes, sitting in, sitting in my office weeping. Uh, she was taking Celexa. You do not want to stop Celexa abruptly. If you stop Celexa abruptly, it has very significant withdrawal effects, of which uh, weeping for no really good reason uh, are one. Uh, we sent her back home to get her pill and take it, and within an hour, she had stopped weeping. <laughs> uh, so that was number two. We spent a good deal of time after that counseling her about how she was dealing with the loss of her husband. And at the last check, she was taking a different antidepressant, one that would help her with her peripheral neuropathy. Um, And um, an important note, while she thought that taking medicine was an important thing in her life, a big issue, it really wasn't. The real issue was her heart problems. It wasn't. It wasn't taking medicine. You can counsel people when they, as they take medicine. I, I, most of the people who come to see you for counseling problems will have already been to the doctor, and they will be taking medicine. And the reason why they've come to see you is it's not working really very well. Their life's not getting any better, and and so. That gives you the great opportunity. You sit in the catbird seat here. You have the opportunity to share with them what God's grace can do in their lives. But I don't talk to them about quitting taking their medicine, and I don't encourage them to do so. I simply take them where they're at, listen to their story, and then counsel them from the scriptures about their heart issues and how they ought to be responding. Third case, uh, the guy that had been sad for 40 years, he's doing reasonably well. I, I spent a good six months talking to him about his disordered sadness and how he could respond to it in a different way. You know, when he was struggling with the sadness, he instead of quitting talking to his family, he, he needed to be talking to lots of people. Uh, and, 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 and it helped him understand that what they saw in him, what I saw in him when he would come in and sit there like a bump on a log was an angry person. In fact, I thought he was angry, told him so, and he said, no, I'm not. And then we started exploring that, and what really came out was that was just what he did. He would just shut down, shut up, and carry a grim look on his face all the time when he was struggling with the mood. 
So individuals who have disordered sadness can learn how to live with and, with, and change, with, uh, live with a chronic problem in the same sense that Paul did. And God told him three times when he wouldn't heal him, my grace is sufficient for you. We are now out of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the opportunity to look at the issue of medicine and, 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 and depression. God, I, I ask that you'd give us wisdom to help people who struggle in this way. And God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Copyright 2017, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.